seated. We are in our study of Paul's letter to the Colossian church, and if you have a Bible and you'd like to turn with me, we're coming today to Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to be picking up reading from uh, verse from verse 1, uh, though we're going to be considering especially verses 11, 12, and 13 today. We read in Colossians chapter 2, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now I say this, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I'm absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you've been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. In him, the passage for today now, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would write this holy word upon our hearts by your Spirit. Make us to understand the depths and the difficulties of what this is teaching us today. Not merely to understand, of course, but to receive and to love as the truth of God and to embrace what you have given to us now and for this life. We pray that you would glorify the Lord Jesus through these words in our lives for his sake. Amen. Well, uh, out of the blue this week, I received a book in the mail. Uh, Victory in all our circumstances. Well, I had a quick peek and I threw it away until I realized the Lord was giving me a sermon illustration and I had to dig it out of the trash. <laughs> now you ask, with such a title, why, why did I throw it away? I mean, isn't this just what we want? Uh, here we are at the beginning of a new year. We want to know how we can live with more faith and peace and power and assurance and, yes, victory. Well, 
including victory over sin, this is what the book promises, how can we do so? I mean, all true Christians feel the attraction of such a title. Um, I read this week about a young man, not, not at our church, who was despairing over his faith and Christian life. He felt that he'd gone far too long in the death grip of sin, but just could not escape it, no matter how much he prayed, no matter how many steps he took to avoid temptation, to increase his accountability to others, how much advice he had sought from pastors and from others. The power of sin was supposed to be broken in his life, but it was not. It didn't seem to be so. What is going on? Some of you have read the story of J.I. Packer uh, in his book, uh, Knowing God and Other Places, in his spiritual autobiography, where he describes the same experience. He'd become a Christian while he was at Oxford as a result of a sermon that he heard one Sunday night at St. Aldate's Church. The sermon convinced him, to his surprise, that he was not a Christian. I mean, he always supposed he was a Christian because he'd grown up going to church every week. But when he was invited that day to come to Christ, he knew that he had not and that he needed to come, and he came. It turned out that he came to Christ about 100 feet from where George Whitfield himself had come to Christ in 1735. That kind of thing happens when you're at Oxford, I suppose. But immediately he became a, a member of the Christian Union at, at the university and began growing in the knowledge of the gospel and the word of God. But I think as happens to every young Christian man, it wasn't long before he realized that Sin was still a great power in his life. Um, what was to be done? At that time, the Christian Union at Oxford was promoting the so-called victorious Christian living, and uh, sometimes called higher life. And young Jim Packer resonated with that offer. He longed for what they called sustained victory over sin, that his spiritual teachers were promising him the end of his spiritual failure. But he found that all of his efforts to follow their plan, to yield himself in total consecration, seemed, as he put it, to leave him exactly where he was before, an immature and churned-up young man, painfully aware of himself, battling his daily way, as adolescents do, through manifold urges, and surges of discontent and frustration. Somehow, he felt, it all seemed a long way from the victorious, power-packed life which spirit-filled Christians were supposed to enjoy. Well, he, he tried it again and again and again and again. He tried to follow their path to success and he found only more frustration. He tried over and over to reconsecrate himself to God, this time for real, because obviously he hadn't done it enough last time. But it never worked. And to make a long story short, one day in the library, he discovered a still uncut volume of the great Puritan John Owen, which contained On Indwelling Sin in Believers and On the Mortification of Sin. And at last, as he read, he understood that there is no secret for the everyday battle of the Christian, or as Paul puts it in chapter 3, that we must daily mortify our members. My point is, as we begin uh, this, looking at this passage, we need to understand the promise that was behind it. We feel the terrible scourge of sin, 
it, it drags us down. It discourages us. We wonder what's wrong with us. And that makes us liable to have false teachers of bogus methods of spiritual advancement gain a hearing, even a following. We do want to enjoy victory, daily, intimate, glorious, joyful communion with God, to feel His presence with us at all times, to gain mastery over our sins, especially our besetting sins, whatever they may be. We want this victory. We're therefore eager to hear it when someone claims that they've found the secret to this victorious Christian life and victory over sin. This is behind what Paul is dealing with in Colossae. We've already come across the buzzwords in this letter, and there's more to come. Fullness, maturity, completeness, power, perfection, and so forth. These false teachers were suggesting that there was more, more that they needed to get, more that they needed to do. And now in verse 11, Paul begins by dealing with some of the specific things that were being pressed or potentially pressed upon the Colossians. First, I'd like to uh, consider with you the allure of circumcision, and second, the answer in Christ, and then we'll work out what it means for us. First, the allure of circumcision. Here it is again, verse 11. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, and so forth. That's a little opaque. It's not very clear. Uh, there are various difficulties in this passage. Some of the newer translations smooth it out and help you out a good bit. But I would like to give you one helpful summary right as we begin of what the meaning is of this passage. From Dick Lucas here, he writes, You believers have no need of external circumcision. You've received a far better circumcision, that of heart and life. The circumcision is yours by virtue of your union with Christ. When he was buried, you, that is your former sinful selves, were buried with him. When he was raised as new creatures, you were raised with him. And in the experience of baptism, you received the sign and seal of this same marvelous spiritual wrought transformation. Clear? Probably not so clear yet. Let me try to back up a little then and explain to you from the beginning the allure of circumcision. How could this possibly be of help? How could this possibly allure the Colossians to, uh, to receive? They have to understand, a few years earlier, there had been a great controversy in the church whether Christians had to be circumcised in order to be saved. Probably doesn't make as much sense to, to modern people. But you have to understand that up to that point, all of God's people had been circumcised. The, the Gentiles were just beginning to come in. And if you wanted to join the people of God, there was one way that you should do it circumcision. The answer, though, was decisively decided at the Jerusalem Council. The Gentiles, as Gentiles, do not need anything more than Christ to be saved. 
Well, now it seems that the controversy has shifted some. Well, though it's not necessary for salvation, it was believed to be powerful for putting off what Paul calls here, in kind of technical terms, the body of the flesh, or as the NIV nicely paraphrases it for us, the putting off of the sinful nature. Perhaps that makes no sense to you also. Let me explain. I think some of you grew up in a church where there was a certain spiritual teaching that was very, very similar to this. Let me read to you from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Baptism actually brings about death to sin. Baptism imprints on the soul an indelible character which consecrates the baptized person. And I could go on about the tremendous power and effect that baptism, according to more than half the church, effects in the soul. And in fact, there were some famous cases in the ancient church where the catechumens reported that they had long struggled with the trials and temptations of sin until that very moment they were baptized. And then God cleansed their soul. And baptism is still considered today by half of the church at least a, a source of tremendous initial and ongoing spiritual power. You understand that, right? You don't have to agree, but you understand the thinking. Well, you have to understand that for many centuries before um, the Colossians were converted to Christ, still today in Orthodox Jewish communities, circumcision is regarded exactly the same way. That it has the power to make unclean people clean, not just ceremonially. Some people have a very uh, low and confused understanding of circumcision and haven't read what the, what the Bible says about it. But in fact, just like baptism, circumcision in the Bible is said to, number one, bring us into God's covenant and promises, Genesis 17, signify an inward heart reality, among other places, Romans 2.28, Picture the death of the old man of sin, Romans 6. Represent repentance and conversion, Jeremiah 4, 4, 9, 25, Leviticus 26. Represent the Holy Spirit's regeneration, Romans 2, 28 and 29. Signify and seal to us justification by faith, Romans 4, 11. Represent a cleansed heart. Deuteronomy 10, 16, Isaiah 52, 1. Represent union and communion with the Lord. Too many references to, to give. Indicate citizenship in Israel. Genesis 17, 4, Galatians 3. Indicate separation from the world. Uh, Ezekiel 12. Lead either to blessings or curses. 1 Corinthians 10 and other places. 
And so to God's circumcised people, he makes this statement in Deuteronomy 30, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. So that's just what we need. People without it, God himself said, are unclean. Verse 13, you, Gentiles, were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. See how it's brought together. You see, if, if, if the Bible regarded circumcision as people do today as oh, just, just a physical sign for some physical people, nobody would have demanded Gentiles to, to take it. But just like a great many people to this day think that baptism is a profound spiritual power that makes all the difference in one's soul and spiritual life, so many people for centuries regarded circumcision. It's today still in Orthodox communities. So today people might say, look, you, you followed the Lord in baptism, but you're only halfway. You need to follow him also in circumcision. Especially when you read passage after passage after passage about what God does for his part in that sign. Especially as you read about its sanctifying, cleansing power. Do you want victory? Well, this is how false Jewish Christian teachers at the time were offering it. Paul knew well how the Christians in Colossae certainly longed for freedom from the flesh, for victory. He knew how open this would make them to the false promises of power that might be offered in this and the other means listed in chapter 2, of which this is only the first. So what's his answer? And what does this have to do with us? Well, that's what we'll consider now. We've considered the allure of circumcision. Hope you understand something of that now. But let's come secondly to the answer in Christ. What's the answer in Christ? Paul says, you have been circumcised. You have been circumcised in Christ. Again, verse 11. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh, sinful nature, by the circumcision of Christ. Circumcision of Christ, interesting phrase. In other words, everything in that long list of 11 things that I gave you that circumcision is said in the Bible to do, and, and baptism for that matter, everything that circumcision promised and pointed to and did, it's yours already in Jesus. Not only is that sign of circumcision fulfilled in the baptism you received, verse 12, but the reality of it is yours in Christ as the circumcision has been performed by Jesus without hands, picking up reading. With the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith, and the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision, the uncleanness of your flesh, sinfulness of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses. The uncircumcision is just a synonym for sinfulness in many places. Okay, circumcision has been done to you. 
It has been made. It has been done without hands. In other words, the inward work. All that circumcision signified is fulfilled. Christ has forgiven your sins, taken them away by the power of his new life. When we believed in Jesus, we too were raised with him to newness of life. Uh, not the eventual resurrection we'll enjoy, but our present experience. We've been given new birth to everlasting life. We've been set apart, consecrated, that, that all those things have already taken place. The immensity of the change is already present in you. Being baptized into Christ and believing into Christ, both mentioned here in verse 12, describe what has happened, our union with him through which we already share all the benefits of his death and resurrection. Our old man has been condemned and sentenced to death, and in Christ we have been raised to newness of life. All right, uh, so my uh, brother-in-law once said in a sermon, rather shockingly, that um, you Christians, God has already done most of the work that he's going to do in you. And I thought, oh God, please let that not be true. Um, that doesn't seem to make any sense to me. How can God have already done it? Well, he's brought you from death to life, you see. He's raised you in Jesus. And, and uh, well, he gave the illustration, you know, uh, if there's a terrible accident, the, the first responders show up on the scene, the first thing they're going to do is check for a pulse from the guy behind the wheel because he may be a bloody mess, but if there's life, well, the rest is just a matter of healing and rehab and so forth. They're going to do everything, but there's a great difference between death and life. And what's already been done for you, brothers and sisters, is life. You say, what about my sins? He's taken them away. You say, what about the power that's remaining in me that daily makes me, makes me humble myself and hate myself and say, oh God, forgive me what is wrong with me? What is the answer? Why is the power of sin still so strong in our life? If my sinful nature slash body of flesh has been cut off, why does it seem so alive and well? Well, Paul is also going to give you the answer to that, though in the second half of his letter. But I will jump ahead with you because I want you to see that this is not just a great theological, theoretical answer to the question. There is this practical matter that we started off with. If my sinful nature is cut off by Christ, why is it so alive and well? Let's come to the application of these verses in the second part of the letter. I have, in fact, four practical applications of this teaching from the letter to the Colossians. First, we should strive to die to sin and to live for righteousness. That's the application of these things in chapter 3. The practical application begins in chapter 3. Just skip down if you have a Bible for a moment to chapter 3, verse 3. Paul says, you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. All right, in union with Jesus, that's true. That's just what he said earlier. Now continue reading. Verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members 
which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. There is this mortification, a daily mortification of our members. Paul is not contradicting himself in the span of two verses. There's a great tension always in the Bible between our position in Christ and our practice of that position as we are still walking in this world. We need to understand that it is ours to live the life that he has given to us. Now that you are saints, you're called to be saints. Are and be. Remember my joke, R and B. You are saints. Be saints. Back to verse 1. If you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not things on the earth. As you set your mind on the chapter 3, verse 2, they will govern your behavior, 5 and following. Sin's power has been broken that you're no longer a slave to sin under its dominion. Your sins have been taken away in Jesus. We are united with him in his victory. And therefore, we are called to mortify, put to death, the deeds of the flesh. And this is what Packer finally realized. Like, what I'm struggling to do every day, that's normal? Yes, that's normal. That, there, there is no shortcut. There is no red pill. There is, no, there is nothing that's going to, going to make all the difference. The fact is, there was no struggle before you were a Christian, and now the spirit within you lusts against the flesh, and the flesh lusts against the spirit. So Paul says, you do not do what you want to do. And so when Paul then gets to the how-to of Christian living in chapter 3, his instruction is not let go and let God. It is all about how we must daily struggle, strive to have Christ as the object, the hope, the strength of our Christian lives and to put to death the members that remain. Verse 12, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, and above all, put on love. So application of this, because this has happened, because you have been circumcised in Christ, because he has put away the body of the flesh, therefore, live no more in it. Die to sin and live for righteousness. And that's not all. More briefly, he goes on to say that we must also, therefore, strive to be one loving body in Christ. One loving body. Since we are united in Christ now, he says, this whole, this whole division, circumcision, uncircumcision, in fact, he goes on to say, every other sinful division in this world should no longer exist in the church, not in Christ. For chapter 3, verse 11, in Christ there is no more Jew or Greek or circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. So, bigger picture, despite all the tensions in the Christian congregations, Paul is not going to allow any kind of cultural or ethnic division. He's working for God's glory in the church. And part of that glory is having these different formerly hostile groups living as one family. They, they used to deride each other, circumcision, uncircumcision. Now one family in Jesus to demonstrate his wisdom to the powers and principalities, chapter 1. Thirdly, we should not submit ourselves to any commandments, principles, traditions, or made-up will worship of men. We should not submit ourselves to any commandments, principles, traditions, or made-up will worship of men. Because, he says, look, big picture, all of these are useless. In fact, 
It's all been taken away. Um, skipping down to verse uh, 16. So then, let no one judge you in regard to food or drink or regard to a festival, new moon, or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance is Christ. And uh, not just Jewish things. Paul goes on. He, since, since you've uh, died, verse 20, with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why would you subject yourself to regulations? Don't touch, don't taste, don't handle. These concern the things that perish with using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Look, Christ is your answer, he's saying. And as for people that are judging you, uh, with regard to what you're doing and not doing, look, they are not the lords of your conscience. They have no right to judge you with regard to any of their festivals or traditions or anything else which the Lord has not put upon us. Negatively, he said, look, we died to that. And we were raised to something altogether different, to live in Jesus. And positively, Christ's resurrection means that we must have, number four, all confidence and joy in Christ. All confidence and joy in Christ. And that's why there's this triumphant language that he keeps coming back to. He's not just saying, avoid all these things. He says, brothers and sisters, you're in Jesus. You, think, you, you, you are saints. You think, well, I'm not much of a saint. Who cares? You're a saint. A new man, a new woman in Jesus. And you must eventually, as a result, become a perfect man, a perfect woman when you appear with him in glory which will be sooner than any of you think. The deed that makes this inevitable was done a long time ago. Jesus died and rose to everlasting life, and you're now in him. Your destiny is written, my friend. It cannot be otherwise. In Jesus, you're a new creation. You take it to the bank. Christ has made it so. You say to yourself on your lowest day, well, I am a new man or a new woman in Jesus. I will not give up. And in and the sense of that privilege and the gratitude for the change, which he keeps bringing us back to, of joy in the Lord and thinking about how different our future is going to be because we are united once and for all to Jesus, will give you victory in him. You can and you will go on. So, in conclusion, what these false teachers were offering the Colossian Christians it seems perhaps a little absurd. You're not being tempted to circumcision for such reasons, right? But they were offering those Christians what every true believer longs for, a great advance in holiness of life, deeper intimacy with God, understanding of His ways, freedom from the power of sin. The desire for these things is so strong that even when Christians ought to know better, they sometimes fall prey to this false teaching. Uh, the, book, the book will be on sale after the service. We'll start. But Paul says to them again, my brothers and sisters, the way forward is not some other way except the road that you began when you first followed Christ. And throughout these verses, we read again and again, the point is made, you don't need a new man-made philosophy. You need Jesus. You don't need a new circumcision of whatever kind. You need Jesus Christ's circumcision, and that you already have. The trees grow from their roots, and your root is Christ. He's the source of it all. He must be the fullness of your heart and mind and life. Seek those things where he is above. God has dwelt in the fullness of bodily form, and there is no fullness outside. If you feel today that, well, 
however much of a poor Christian you are, you have more lust than true noble affection in your heart. If you mourn because it seems to you there is more unbelief in your life than a life of faith, well, don't waste your time looking for any shortcut to godliness. There is no mystery to discover, no esoteric formula to apply to the Christian life. It is what you began with Jesus, Christ who is our life, it continues in him. Uh, this verse is a good one to memorize, as some of you navigators did in college or something, right? As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith that you've been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. That's the way. It was he who has purchased you with his blood. And as we begin a new year, we renew our commitment to the Lord Jesus and to living in him, by him, and for him. If all the fullness of God dwells in him, and if we're in him, then the more he means to us, the better our days shall be, the stronger our love, the purer our lives, the more faithfully we will serve and obey. We don't need something else. We need more and more of what we have in Jesus, and that is my simple message for this complicated passage. People, you just need Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we have received life from you, now we would live it, that we will be able to offer it back to you again. You have raised us, and we present ourselves, therefore, as living sacrifices to be holy and acceptable in your sight. Keep us from being conformed any longer to this world. Oh, may the renewing of our minds transform our lives that we may prove what is that good and perfect and acceptable will and bless this church that we might truly be one body in Christ and individually members of one another, that our common life in Jesus would unite us in strength and in joy and perhaps not in a total and final victory for which we long for that day to come. But nevertheless, a true, fruitful, and victorious life in Jesus.